sorry, Mitch, I forgot to bring the clicker up. Thank you. Several of you astute, uh, astute readers of the Bible or knowledge of, have knowledge of the book of Nehemiah have pointed out to me that there's a couple of chapters in Nehemiah which at face value don't lend themselves uh, that greatly to uh, what we would often consider good messages from a church pulpit. Chapter 3 would be one of those because it's filled with a list of names. And as you know, names in the Old Testament or the New Testament sometimes, but names in the Old Testament certainly can be difficult. I would, uh, it's is probably the longest uh, section of text that I about ever preached from, and we're going to read the entire chapter of Nehemiah chapter 3, and I will read it for us. I'm going to invite you, ask you to follow along. I'm also going to invite you to consider that uh, this is uh, some really exciting stuff. Now, you may shake your head a little bit or scratch your head a little bit about that, and maybe we'll, you'll disagree with me when we get to the end, but... Um, it's a good opportunity for me to, to slide something in that I think I've said before to people. I know I've said it in personal conversation. I don't know if I've, how much I've said it in, you know, corporate kind of settings like this. But it's a good opportunity for me to slide in, uh, lest you think that um, I carry this kind of enthusiasm all the time with, uh, you know, texts of Scripture that are filled with names you can't pronounce or things like that. I want you to know that, there, that God's Word does the same work on me as I'm hoping it's doing to you, as it does on you. Uh, there are, maybe, maybe this lessens your confidence in me, I don't know. There are plenty of weeks when I, uh, I've laid out the text where we're going to go. I do that at the beginning, and it changes over time sometimes. But as we get ready to preach through a book, I lay out the text and sort of where we're going to start and stop, which seems to make good section breaks. And... Uh, as there are many weeks when I look into what's coming in that week, maybe on a Monday or something, or usually I know coming in the weekend already, so I'm thinking into next week, and I think of that text and I think to myself, I'm not really sure what could be there to preach out of. I'm not really sure what's going to be there. And, and as, again, I pointed out, some of you talked with me about this, and I said, you know, I don't really know. I'm, there's, I'm confident that the Lord will bring something out of this text. I don't know exactly what that's going to be because it's a list of names of people who worked on the wall. Um, but as I sit there every week and study the Word of God, I can tell you the faithfulness of God Himself. I can tell you the power of God's Word. I can tell you the amazing ability of the Holy Spirit to take things that, which seem to us to not have much to say or seem to us to not have much to talk about, and it just sort of continues to break open. And this is a testimony of who God is of the glory of what God has done in the written word and through his Holy Spirit and for us. So join me if you would. Do your very best to pay attention. It's a long text and I don't like, one of the reasons I don't like reading long texts is because I think that sometimes we tend to think we can check out during that time, which I think is an awful shame because the most important things you're going to hear every Sunday morning are the things that come right out of here, not the things that come out of here. Verse 1, chapter 3, Nehemiah. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, ha Sorry, I skipped a line there. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. 
And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshazabal, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Joiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besadiah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jaden the Maranathite. The men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Verse 8. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabniah, repaired. Melchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Verse 13. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakerem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kalhoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehom, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half district of Kila. Repaired of his, for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of the half district of Kila. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, in verse 20, after him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Mas Masiah, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Binui, the son, son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living in Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. You still tracking along here? Verse 27. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate. 
and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Thank you for reading through that with me. I know it's a tough text. I am confident I did not pronounce every name right. I'm sure I messed many of them up. The point of it is, I think we should get excited, first of all, for what we see happening in response to what we talked about last week. Last week, Nehemiah gathers them around, and he begins to encourage them. He begins to tell them what God has been doing through him. And he says those two words. What were those two words? You can say them in English. You don't have to say them in Hebrew. Rise and build. It is no accident, my friends, that the very first verse says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose, that's the word, kum, wept with his brothers, the priests, and they built, bana, the sheep gate. And this chapter is chock full of those words, rising, building. Now, by the way, the word rise, I'm sorry, the word build appears seven times. There's another word that appears even more. It's a complement to that word. The word means repair. It's kozak. You don't need to know that word necessarily. But it shows up 32 times. I'm sorry, I'd get, yeah, 32 times in the span of these verses. I think I actually wrote that down wrong. I think it's actually 35 times in 32 verses, if I'm not mistaken. Pretty sure that's correct. My, what I wrote here in my Bible is, I wrote 32, but I'm pretty sure it's 35. 35 times in 32 verses, the word repair. This is what the work is all about. Lest we think, oh, here's the boring chapter. Here's the chapter where the work is actually happening. Here's the chapter where they respond to what God is doing, and they say, we're going to rise, and we're going to build. And I love that it begins with those at the top, right? Who's the first one mentioned? Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up, and the priests with him. I can tell you it will be no different for us today. If we're going to talk about repairing or rebuilding anything, it will begin at the top with those who say it's time to repair or to rebuild. In other words, it's unfair. It is unfair for me to stand up here and exhort and encourage all of you to have some interest in repairing breaches in the wall when I'm not willing to do the same thing. Or in fact, if I'm not willing to start. That's a strong statement. I realize I'm incriminating myself. I'm realizing I'm holding myself to something. But I can't move away from what I believe is here in the text. The other thing I love about where it starts is the man's name himself, Eliashib. You know names mean something in Scripture. They mean something in all of life. But the names in Scripture really mean something. The name Eliashib means God will restore. God will restore. Think about that. How perfect is it that the man who responds to that call says, I hear what God is doing and I'm going to stand up. His name means God will restore. For any restoration we're going to attempt has to be through God. We already talked about that the other week. Our, good, our hands will not do anything good unless the good hand of God is upon us. Now, quite literally, the word Eliashib is made up of two Hebrew words. El, meaning God, and Shub, which means repent, restore. We further can understand that there can be no work of restoration or repairing of the walls unless we get down to what we're really talking about, and that's repentance. Turning around, turning back. What a beautiful 
picture. You see, as you see this chapter unfold and you see visually what's happening and they're restoring a wall and they're setting the gates and its bars and all those things. They're putting together back what the, we talked about what a wall means, right? It's restrictions keeping us inside where we should be, keeping things outside where they should be. And it's about identity. As we see a physical rebuilding, it's a beautiful picture. The man that starts that rebuilding shows us that this is about the fact that God wants to lead us to repentance. And rebuilding happens. Restoration, repairing happens through repentance. And what follows in this chapter is list of name after name after name after name after name of people who stepped up and said, I'm part of this work. And they began to look at where they were at and rebuild the wall in front where they were at and the gates where they were at and follow on down the lines. And there are stories in these, with these people. There are stories with these places that they're doing. Take, for example, I think it's back in verse 29. There's a guy named Shemaiah. Let me just look to make sure. In verse 29 it says, After him Shemaiah the son of Shechaniah, who was the keeper of the east gate, repaired. This guy has a history, right? It turns out that this guy has restoration and repairing in his blood. If you were to flip back to the book of Ezra in chapter 10, after Ezra has brought about some reforms, he realizes in chapter 9 that there are still, uh, there's, there's this problem still within the people of Israel for they have intermarried with the surrounding nations, something God told them not to do. He wanted to keep them pure and not bring in the gods and the practices and the, all the things of the cultures around them. And they realized in chapter 9 of Ezra that this had not been kept and there was intermarriage. There was, there was there was things brought in from the outside culture into their own culture, and they realized this is the problem. And Ezra sat down, and he mourned, and he wept, and he put dust on his head, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. If you look in Ezra chapter 10, verse 2, look at what it says. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, and this is what he said. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. And listen to what he says in verse 4. Arise, for it is your task. Talking to Ezra. Arise, for it is your task. But listen to what he says. And we are with you. Be strong and do it. First of all, let me just point out Yes, there is an instance in Scripture that we're reading about right here where God took people that were married and split them apart. Keep reading the chapter there and you'll see that's exactly what happened. We get in all kinds of discussions today about marriage and remarriage and all kinds of stuff. And I'm not making the case here. I just like to point out. I'm not saying this is what should always happen. I'd just like to point out that there's an example here in Scripture where God split marriages apart. And we would often say that's never going to happen or should never happen. That's not part of the point of the message here. I'd like to point out to you that this man, Shemaiah, has, has a father who stood next to Ezra and said, I recognize you have a really difficult task, Ezra. You have been crying out to God. You have been wondering what to do. And now God is leading you to say that all these marriages should be broken up. And you realize what a tough task this is going to be. But listen, we are here. We're the ones that did wrong. It's your task to lead us in this, but we're here and we're supporting you. Be strong and go ahead and do the painful things. 
can I tell you, friends, when I dragged it over to me, I look at that text and I say, it is a blessing. And I've heard this from many of your mouths, so this is a compliment to you. It is a blessing as a pastor, as a person who seeks to preach accurately the word of God. It is a blessing to have people remind me to say, it hurts when you say those things to us sometimes, but please keep saying them to us. Please keep doing the hard work of dividing from us what should not be and asking us to separate ourselves. It means everything because it is a tough task. It is not fun to tell you things on Sunday mornings that I know are not easy to hear or that I'm asking you to do things that are really, really difficult because there's a lot of really difficult things that God asks us to do in context of the surrounding uh, culture around us. To stand in, in the force against the wave of, of, of worldliness that is around us. It is so nice to have people like Shechaniah who are standing there and saying, it's a tough task, but rise up. God has asked you to do it. We're here with you. We're going we're gonna to ask you to do what is, difficult, what is difficult to do, which is to ask us to do something hard. If you get what I'm trying to say. This man, Shemaiah, who's working on the wall in Nehemiah chapter 3, his dad is the one who did that. His dad laid the foundation for Shemaiah to say, when the work of restoration should happen, you step up and do it. But I want you to also know something else. You see, we're just reading about these places. We say from this place to this place and this place to this place and this gate and this gate was here. But these are all real places that existed that have history attached to them. If you were a Jewish person and you were there and you know your history, when you're physically rebuilding something, there's history attached to that. For example, verse 28, it talks about this place called the horse gate. Do you know something that happened at the horse gate? If you go back in Israel's history, back in the book of Chronicles, or you could read about 2 Kings as well, but you go back there, there's a man named, I'm going to make sure I get the names right, so I'm just going to turn back there. There's a man named, uh, go back one more chapter, Ahaziah, who's the king, and his mom's name is, does anybody know what Ahaziah's mom's name is? A little Bible trivia for you this morning. It's okay if you don't know, I, that's why I turned back and looked, so. This is, I'm looking at 2 Chronicles 22 and 23 is what I'm looking at. Her name is Athalia. Athalia. Now, Athalia, if you read the books of Kings and Chronicles, you have this whole history of kings that are good or bad, right? They're different. They're, some are good kings, some are bad kings. Well, Ahaziah was not a good king, but I'll tell you, his mom was even worse. He actually made a lot of bad decisions because it was essentially his mom, Athalia, who was ruling through him. When Ahaziah died, it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 22, that his mother Athalia saw that he was dead and she killed all of the royal family so that she could become the ruler of Israel. And she did rule. Well, she killed all the royal family except for a little boy named Joash who was stolen away by his sister and kept there. His sister was married to the uh, high priest at the time, Jehoiada. If you know the story here, when Joash was uh, in his seventh year, Jehoiada declared that uh, he was going to make Joash king. He brought him out, and he uh, declared that Joash was now king. Athalia hears it, and she cries treason from her, from her, uh, from the, uh, uh, if I, I just look here. She was standing by the pillar of the entrance, and she tries treason, and Jehoiada points at her and says, get her and get her out of there. And we read this in Second Chronicles twenty three fifteen. 
They laid hands on her and she went into the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house and they put her to death there. And it brought about a period of reforms in the nation of Israel. Joash became king. A lot of those reforms actually were due to Jehoiada, who would have been his uncle by marriage, who restored, following the book of scripture, restored the temple. All kinds of good things happened. Now think about that. If you were there in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day and you were working at the horse gate and you knew your history, you knew that this important work that you were doing was mirroring an event that happened in your history. Where they put to death a wicked woman who usurped authority and led the nation of Israel into much sin. It's not the only place we find things that are historical. For example, just one verse later in verse 29, we have, uh, we have what's called the East Gate. And the East Gate is also part of the section here. It doesn't list a lot of repairs were happening to it. But something really important happened at the East Gate that if the person working there knew their history, they might be thinking back to a day. Well, I should say, I was going to say not that long ago, but really kind of, you know, 70-some, 80-some years ago. But a man named Jeremiah stood at that gate one morning. And followed the Lord's direction and shared some words that were hard for the people to hear. You want to know the words he shared? If you look at Jeremiah chapter 19, you'll see the words that, that God had him share at the east gate. Jeremiah chapter 19 begins this way. Thus says the Lord, go buy a potter's earthenware flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate. At the entry of the Potsherd Gate. Now it's called the Potsherd Gate now in this text because of what he's going to do. But it actually is the East Gate. It's the same gate we just read about. And proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. I'm going to read this this morning and ask you to bring it here. I'm going to say, hear the word, leaders of the church and people of the church. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it ever did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. By the way, Topheth means disgrace. And in this place, verse 7, I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem and will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth, and I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Excuse me, I'm sorry about that. A thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. These are not fun words to read or to hear. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. That's all the message. Now listen, here he's giving the instructions. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of men who go with you and shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, so will I break this people and the city as one who breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. Men shall bury in Topheth because there will be no place else to bury. 
Thus will I do to this place, declares the Lord, and to its inhabitants, making this city like Topheth. Once again, listen. I know a lot of text there. Listen. If you're there that day and you're rebuilding the eastern gate, the east gate, and you're making any kind of repairs, and you might happen to see a little scrap of pottery laying there from some other reason just because the city's in disrepair, you might jog your memory back to that day and think, oh, if the people would have just listened to the message Jeremiah gave. Then the work that I'm doing now would not have been necessary. And perhaps today, when you and I look at each other and we sincerely say, I want to rebuild what's lacking in our, my personal life and in my family and in our church. And you might see something that jogs your memory back to some message you heard a long time ago or something you read from Spurgeon or somewhere down the road or back there. And you say, oh, if only people would have heard and listened and obeyed, I wouldn't have to be doing what I'm doing today. But I can say one more thing because as we're here today, the choice that we, you and I have to make about what we'll do with what God says in God's word and what he wants us to do, there might come a point someday down the road where someone might be reminded of something and say, if only those people back there would have done what God said, then we wouldn't be in the place where we are today. When we're concerned about where our nation is going, when we're worried about how things might look in 50 years or 20 years or five years or next year, we might see a reminder somewhere and say, if we would have listened to something that would have was said back there, we might not find ourselves in a place where God says, I will make this city a whore, a thing to be hissed at. I will make the people of the church a whore and people to be hissed at. That all who passed by will be horrified. I want to be careful how I translate this. Because it's no light thing. It's no, it's no mean thing to say. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters. And everyone will shall eat the flesh of the neighbor in the siege and in their distress. But I could make a small parallel to point out the fact that in the church we were losing all of our young people. In the midst of a pandemic, we're all fighting with each other. Other believers, we're all fighting with each other. And I might point to a little shard of pottery somewhere and say, perhaps we could have avoided some of these things had we done what God's word asks of us. Perhaps we wouldn't have these gaping holes in our wall had we listened. There's all kinds of places that your mind might be going to and to be honest, there's not a lot of specific things that I'm referring to when I say that, except to say there's been exhortation after exhortation over the years, and I know that I'm as guilty as anyone of taking some of those and saying, ah, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. And I'm going to be careful to make sure that I 
clarify, I'm not necessarily talking about the outward things that we do. I'm talking about the inward obedience of the heart where I believe it's become very obvious that even in our own conservative culture, we've become about as worldly as everyone else. We've become just as consumed with what we can get from the world and pursuing our own passions and our own pleasures. We've become just as concerned with making sure we look right on the outside and don't care about the inside. We've become just as preoccupied as to say we don't have time to spend that much time praying or that much time reading the Word of God. We've become just as busy with our own stuff that we don't have time for anyone else. We've become just as desensitized as the rest of the world to say we don't even notice when those sitting in church with us are hurting or it's not worth our time or we don't care about them enough, we don't love them enough. And as we're rebuilding, and let's do that so that someday down the road they don't look back at us and say, why didn't they take time to rebuild the walls? Why did they just let them get in a greater state of disrepair? As we're doing that, we'll be reminded that there's plenty of lessons in God's word that we, that I, that you, each of us individually and as families and as a church here at Riverview before we talk about the broader church around us and certainly as a church broadly can and should put back into practice and find ways to obey. Perhaps you could even just ask the Holy Spirit if you'd be so bold right now to ask him what some of those things might be. I just had a little psalm run through my head. Better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. Is that really what we think? I would say the evidence of our Take this how you want. The evidence of our spending time with the Lord or the evidence of our attendance at church or in church functions declares that we think that's pretty much the opposite. We'd rather spend a thousand days doing something else than one day with the Lord. That's what ran through my head. You can ask the Holy Spirit what should run through your head. But let me make a few observations from chapter 3 of Nehemiah. Things that I see from this text to help pull together and summarize some things. In the midst of names that are hard to pronounce, things that get lost, as I'm sure as I was reading through it, you might have had the temptation to check out in your brain and think of other things. I want us to remember that these are real people. This is a real historical document. These people actually lived and actually did the work. They're real people. Not only do I want us to know that from a historical perspective so that you know this, that these were real people back then, but that it's going to take real people to rebuild the walls now. We cannot get caught in the lie that says, yeah, we need to rebuild and someone somewhere is going to do it. And it just is going to somehow happen. These are real people that stepped up to the plate and said, if it's going to happen, it's going to have to happen by me. So let's rise and build. These people were from Jerusalem. 
And they were from far away. I'm struck by that. They're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. But you notice there's some people that clearly were re rebuilding by their house or rebuilding. They were the rulers of, 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 the, of the district, half district of Jerusalem, for example, or something like that. But many of these people live from some of the, out, the extending areas, some of them pretty far away if you look at a map. This is a great work and it will take great, a great many hands to do. This is not one person's job. This is a job of many people who are real and they are from all over the place. Look at what I, I just keep making these points here. This was not their day job. These were not construction laborers who said, oh, that's my job. I'll go build the wall. They were goldsmiths and perfumers and merchants and priests and temple servants. And I'm sure though there's not many other things mentioned, I'm guessing. Many of them were not construction people or stonemasons by trade. Yet none of them, listen church, none of them excused themselves to say, well, that's not my job. I'm not really good at that. They said it needs to be rebuilt. I'm going to go do it. We, I, I just gave mention of this, but we are so prone to thinking, this is a really bad thing. Somebody's got to change that. And then we look around and say, who's that going to be? Or we go to the pastor and say, you got to take care of that. And I'm not saying it's not always appropriate. But I'm wondering where are there people that are willing to say, if I notice that something needs to be repaired, I should step up and repair it. I don't care if it's not my day job. It's not what I'm good at. It's not what it, my, my most greatest gifting is. It's not what I, it, it doesn't matter. If I saw that it needs to be repaired, there's probably a good reason why I'm the one that saw that. They did not excuse themselves. We also see in this text, excuse my 2020 vernacular that was not in the text back then, but we see that there were some what I call slackers and there were some what I call overachievers. You notice in verse uh, 5, it mentions the Tekoites. They built in this section, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. They wouldn't help. I don't know what they thought about themselves. They thought they were too good, too rich, too proper. It wasn't their job. I don't know what they thought but they would not stoop to serve their Lord. They didn't help. So you know there were people there, because I know this is going to frustrate us, by the way, church. Listen, this is going to frustrate us when we make a sincere effort at rebuilding our families, putting walls back up, saying, and we're going to get frustrated because, well, there's other people that aren't doing it. There were people there in Jerusalem that were watching the work happen. They weren't doing it either. Understand that, right? There were those who would not stoop to do the work. But I love it that in the very same verse, there's Tekoites. If you would flip over to verse, I didn't jot it down, so it's in there somewhere. Verse 27, look at who shows up again. The Tekoites repaired another section. You know, they had some that didn't help at all, but they had some that did twice as much. They had some, and they're not the only ones, by the way. There's a couple of names in there. If you read through it carefully, there's a couple of individuals named more than once they repaired this section. They must have gotten done. There's a section over here. Hey, I'll go over here and help over here too. This is, well, what we find. And we're going to waste all of our energy if we're going to get upset about those kind of things. Can I tell you just real bluntly? I already did. But can I tell you again real bluntly? There will be those who do more than their share of the work. And there will be those who don't do anything at all. None of that excuses any of us who have been called to help. And one more point I want to make. We see one little verse tucked away in here. By the way, just in general, I should have mentioned this up front. In general, when we see the names of a person, 
it's, uh, it's generally implied that there's, it's not just that person, it's his family that's there helping the work. Sometimes it mentions their sons, but even, you notice sometimes it mentions it in plural, but it only names one guy. Like, next to him, they're brothers, and then it mentions one guy. It's because there's a family there. They're just naming the family heads that are there. But there's one specific verse in verse 12 that says that this guy, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Now, I was just struck by that, that, that there was women that helped. I think this probably was probably a pretty uncharacteristic in that day. I'm sure you can understand that, that the women were out there helping. But it struck me to just pay a little attention to the places we see women pop up in Scripture. We know, for example, that women helped with the contributions to the original tabernacle. If you read all the way back in Exodus chapter 35, it says this. Every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, and they helped build the tabernacle. We know that Jesus had women that ministered to him, right? We read in Mark chapter 15, verse 40, that there were women looking on from a distance. It named some of them. That's where the dot, dot, dots are there. Didn't have room to put all that on there. Named some of them. And it says, and when he was in Galilee, when Jesus was in Galilee, they followed him and they ministered to him. We also know that Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, he said this in chapter four, verse three. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. That Paul considered women to have labored side by side with him in the gospel. It occurs to me that it makes sense that they contributed to the tabernacle, they ministered to Jesus, they co-labored with Paul, and they helped in the work of the restoration. Certainly, if all that happened today, it's going to be no different. Females, women, we need you in the restoration as much as anybody else. I have often found that my wife has an insight or can see things in ways that I don't, and quite frankly, most times she is spot on. Not always, because no one's perfect. So it's necessary for us to have not just the men involved in the work of repairing this, this wall that we're talking about. That was not one of my main points, but we're going to bring us all the way down to the very last chapter, or last verse in this chapter, make a full circle. You notice we started with Eliashib. He began where? Make sure you all paying attention. Where did Eliashib begin? Begin the work. He began at the... Sheepgate, and what we read in the very last verses between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheepgate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. They brought it back full circle. Now the entire city has been surrounded and rebuilt. I love, by the way, that the sheepgate was where it began and ended. There's a little verse tucked away in John chapter 5, verse 2, that says, There isn't Jerusalem by the sheepgate. Well, before I read that verse, do you know what happened to the sheepgate? What was the sheepgate for? Pretty obvious, right? Sheep. That was not a trick question. Sheep. But particularly, it was the sheep that were brought in for sacrifice. It wasn't the main gate where all the commerce happened. The sheep gate was where the people were brought in for the, the sheep were brought in, sorry, for the sacrifice that was going to be made at the temple. The sacrificial lambs were brought in through the sheep gate. And John records that there was by the sheep gate, there was a pool that in Aramaic is called Bethesda. You remember that Bethesda, this pool, has these columns, and by the columns lay all the invalids, and they're hoping that they can get to the pool when the angel stirs the water and be healed. It is there that Jesus shows up one day and heals a man, and it happens to be on a Sabbath, and what follows from that text in John chapter 5 is that Jesus asserts his authority. He, equal, he makes himself equal with God himself and makes himself an enemy of the Jewish leaders. Jesus I don't know if he walked through the sheep gate at that moment, but we know that uh, 
Spiritually speaking, Jesus walked through that sheep gate. He became the scorn for those uh, uh, to represent the scorn and the shame of sin. He became that for us. He walked through the sheep gate. He was that sacrifice. But at the same time, he demonstrated his authority and the fact that he was God. We today, as followers of Jesus, want to learn a few lessons from this chapter. I gave you a few of my, of some, uh, uh, some things, some observations from the text of Nehemiah chapter 3. I want to draw just a couple of spiritual principles for us today out of the text. If you'll permit me another several minutes here. The first is I'm going to go back to verse 5 and those nobles. There's something more going on than just the fact that they were slackers and didn't want to help. They would not stoop to serve their Lord. That phrase, they would not stoop, means they would not put themselves under the yoke. That's what that word means, stoop, under, to be yoked. They would not put themselves under the yoke of their Lord. To me, this has great, 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 I can't even say enough, spiritual importance to us as we even try to consider rebuilding the wall in our life. There's something so important about stooping, about yielding, about putting ourselves under the yoke. You know the reality is, I can point out so many wonderful, incredible points out of Scripture. And I'm going to make sure you know I put myself in your shoes. We can give mental assent. We can agree with all those points. We can say, yes, I understand it. I agree with it. It's 100% factual. But the bottom line is if we will not stoop, if we will not be yoked or come under the yoke of what God says in his word, nothing will change in our lives. And there are plenty of times, I'm convinced of it because I've seen it in my own life, there are plenty of times when I have become aware through the Holy Spirit that I'm not doing something correct and I'm just not quite willing yet to yield to that. There will very, very likely, almost 99.9% .9 certainty, I could probably just say 100% certainty, there will come things as we talk about rebuilding walls, maybe already happened, as we have, if we're sincerely seeking the Holy Spirit, what that means, there will come times when God asks something of us that we're going to say, oh, that's I, I can't do that. I can't give that up. I can't look at it that way. People will think I'm crazy. People will think I've lost my mind. I don't want to give that up. I don't want to walk away from that. I want to keep doing this. I don't want to keep doing that. I don't want to start doing this. You name it, I don't know what it will be. But something will come along that we will say, I'm not sure I'm willing to do that. And that will be the moment of decision for us where we will either be men of Tekoa, which by the way, that's where Amos comes from. Little side note. Men of Tekoa, who will say, this is my section, and I'm going to help with here too, or nobles of Tekoa, who will say, I will not stoop to do this work. May I remind you, as you think about that, may I remind you of two New Testament passages. The first is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to these words. I know it's so easy for us, friends. I know, I know, I know it's so easy for us to... Picture all kinds of other people out there that these verses fit. I beg of you, I beg of us, let's not too quickly dismiss that they might be for us. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And now here it comes to us. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were noble of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one who boasts Boast in the Lord. Friends, are you and I convinced that the way to glory, the path to glory, is to humble ourselves, is to lower ourselves, is to put ourselves down to the lowest spot, not elevate ourselves? It goes against the very grain of who we are as humans. Our flesh wants to rise. Our flesh wants to elevate ourselves. Our flesh wants to be recognized. Let's not be like the men of Tekoa who were too noble, who thought themselves too noble. They really weren't, but who thought themselves too noble to stoop. And may I remind you of Jesus' own words. Lest you think there is no yoke at all. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. It is my opinion, friends, that many of us lack rest because we are not willing to put on Jesus' yoke. We think it will be bondage. We think it will be too hard. We think it won't be what we want. It may not be what our flesh wants. I'll just tell you that. We think we can be without a yoke, that we don't have to have any yoke at all. We think all kinds of things. But many of us live lives not at rest, full of anxiety, because we refuse to take the yoke of Jesus upon us. Those are not my words. Those are the king of the world's words. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He is lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. First a warning, those that would not stoop to serve their Lord, let's let's learn from that and not be like that. Let me give a couple of uh, separate uh, encouragements to us. Several times this phrase, repaired opposite their house, shows up in this text. That those who were working on the wall doing the restoration, they did so opposite their house. And that struck me because I think many times, friends, if I can say this bluntly, I think many times we spend a lot of energy and a lot of time worrying about things that are not outside of our control to fix or take care of. And we don't take care of the things that are right in front of us that we actually can work on. It's a little bit like Jesus saying we have uh, big old beams in our eyes and we choose to take the speck out of other people's eyes. It's a little bit of that feel. But can I encourage us to rise and to build, but to begin with the section that is opposite our house, so to speak, that is right where we live, right where we are. Let's not spend precious energy trying to fix problems out there 
when there's big gaping holes right here. Let's begin working opposite our house. If there's time, if the Lord permits us, if there's energy we have, if there's places God calls us, he may take us to another section that needs repairing as well. But let's begin opposite our own house. And the final thing I want to say about this whole thing is I know it gets redundant. Maybe you felt like it was, it's just, I kept saying it over and over again because it's there in every verse. But it just kept saying it next to him and next to him and next to them and on their, and by the way, that phrase right there means on, on their right hand or on their left hand, but on the, at their hand. You get this picture that emerges of them, if I can say it this way, hand in hand around the city of Jerusalem. As we pull details out of this text, let's not miss the big picture of the entire group of people, one solid connected line, excuse me again, one solid uh, group of people, line of people that were joining the work together. There's something that has to be said about this hand in hand, this next to him, 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 next to him. That got the work finished. This task, I already said this, will not be accomplished by one person, but by all of us. It reminds me of some texts in the New Testament. If I'm bringing spiritual principles out, it reminds me of some texts in the New Testament. Particularly sections like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which I won't read for you this morning. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as you know, is the place where Paul says, hey, the body of Christ is like a human body. Is made up of all these different parts. They have different functions. They do different things. Fingers and eyes and ears and skin and bones. Paul didn't use all those. I did. But they all contribute to the whole. And we have to have every one of those to have an entire body, to have the whole body. And this is the picture I see in Nehemiah chapter 3. And on their hand and at their hand and at their hand and at their hand, it takes all of them. Think of what would have happened if they would have gotten three-fourths of the way around, and yet they wouldn't have it. anybody that would have stepped up and repaired this section of the wall. Guess where the enemies would have come? That section. You know that's true, right? If your wall is not complete, if you have one little chink in there, that's the place where the enemy comes in. It takes a body. It takes a group. It takes all of us doing our parts. Now, what I do want to read to you is the parallel passage which comes out of Ephesians. And so I want to read that for us in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is talking about what Jesus has done. And this is all the work that Jesus has done. He descended. He ascended by grace. He's giving each of us uh, according to his measure uh, of Christ's gift. And he goes on to say in verse 11. I'll just read a couple of verses here. And he gave to the church. He gave the Excuse me, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why did he give all those? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body. Isn't it interesting? We're talking about the word build. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning. By craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
I put that last part up. That's the one I wanna, part I want to emphasize. When the whole body is joined together and each part is working properly. Are you hearing this? When each part is working properly, that's when the body grows so that it builds itself up in love. Though I told you by observation that there were some who did not do any work and some who did lots of work, that's not the intention of what Christ has for his church. The intention is that if you are in Christ, if you're here this morning, please hear this, and you are in Christ, then he has gifted you according to his grace with a particular function in the body. I would ask you, A, do you know what that is? B, are you doing your part? The body cannot expect to be whole, cannot expect to grow up and to be mature and to build itself up in love unless you're willing to say, I have a part on this wall and I will play it. May it be said of us in our families and in our church, next to him, next to him, and next to her, and next to her, and next to them, and next to them, and next to him, and next to them, until the circle is completed. This is where God needs us to be. This is what Nehemiah showed us. But this is what we need to hear today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your text. Thank you for what you have to say to us. To be honest, when we say thank you for what you have to say to us, there's an implication there that we want to listen and we maybe should confess that it's not always so easy. It's a whole lot easier for us to just let the words wash past us and say, yeah, that's good. Somebody else should be listening. Yeah, sometime down the road I'll pay attention. Yeah, I think I'm really doing my part already. Yeah, I don't really want to do my part. But God, I pray in the power of the Holy Spirit that whatever, wherever we are at this morning, wherever our hearts are at this morning, that your word would grip us and hold us. Your spirit would illuminate to us what you have for each of us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you care enough about us to help us to see what you want. I pray in the name of Jesus you would open our eyes. And I pray in the name of Jesus you would uh, bring action out of us. Whether it's to spend more time in prayer, whether it's to share words with our neighbors, whether it's to change some things in our family at home, whether it's to uh, just start having devotions at home, whether it's to uh, uh, pray with our family, whether it's to do something different, whether it's to start doing something, whatever it might be. I pray that as you open our eyes to see what you have given to us as the re a section to, for us to repair in our wall, that you would also give us the grace, the strength, the oomph to get it done. All things are because of you, Father. We thank you that, Jesus, in you we find the answer to our every need. Maybe more than anything as we close in prayer this morning, maybe more than anything is yet one more opportunity for us. You give them to us all the time and we do not want to waste the chances, the grace that you give us. Maybe one more chance for us to again say, I will stoop to serve my Lord. I will put your yoke upon me, Jesus. For nothing good can be accomplished in me and through me until I am yielded to you.
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand this morning? As I mentioned before, we have a meal. I invite you to stay. I'm going to close with prayer and just pray for the noon meal as well.